So Joshua was given the commission. Moses had died and he needed to be strong and courageous. It said it four times in the first chapter to not let the word of God depart from his mouth, not to turn from it to the right or to the left, but to stay focused and obedient and submitted to God and continually having God's word in his tongue and in his heart and, and on his mind and continue to obey it. Well, in chapter 2, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly. Now, we don't know exactly where the location was. We can go today in the country of Jordan and be east of the city of Jericho. And uh, you're right almost to the Dead Sea, but you're, the Sea of Galilee is up north. And from that, the Jordan River comes out and goes down into the Dead Sea So somewhere between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, which is quite a distance, but closer to the Dead Sea across from Jericho. Jericho is there today. It's in the same location. It's the oldest city uh, runs that there is in the world today. And um, right across there, there was an acacia grove, and that's where these millions of children of Israel were staying, estimated around two or three million. But he secretly sent just two spies into the land. Now, you might remember back in Numbers 13, where they had a rather public sending of 12 spies to go into the land. And it's interesting if you compare between Numbers and then Deuteronomy. The one, it sounds like the Lord was the instigator of sending in the 12 spies, but then you get to Deuteronomy, a retelling of it, and Moses says, you guys wanted it and God allowed it, but as we know, the whole thing ended up backfiring. They all came back, and Joshua and Caleb were full of faith and excited. And, and to their dismay, the other ten spies were going, yeah, the land's great, but these people are giant. They have fortified cities. There's no way in the world we could ever conquer this land. We're going to end up uh, becoming slaves, and our children are going to become uh, their slaves, and our wives are going to be raped, and all the guys are going to be murdered. And they, they got into this horrible tailspin. And uh, they end up, God end up saying, you know what, you're, you're just all going to die in the wilderness. And your children who you said are going to become slaves and raped and all of this, they're going to be the ones to go into the land. So this time, instead of a public sending of 12 spies, <clears throat> there was a secret sending of just two spies. And no doubt Caleb knew he, needed, he wanted guys like him and Caleb, just men full of faith full of the Holy Spirit, who are going to go and, and look at the land from God's point of view, not from man's point of view. So he said to them, go view the land, especially Jericho. That's going to be their first major war, if you would. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now, you say, why did they go to a harlot's house? You know what? I, Often the Bible just records what happens. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you why. It doesn't say good or bad. It just said they did it. Um, no excuses here. I, I don't think this was a good choice. But as we know in the, the long run, it was indeed the Lord leading them to a woman of faith. Uh, again, at this time, they're foreigners. They're going into a city. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of places they could have went that they wouldn't have been probably recognized Remember, just a very short ways away, you've got 
three million people there. (laughs) They're all camped out, ready to cross over. So no doubt, they're watching them. They're watching for spies to come in. So uh, this isn't something that that the king of Jericho is not looking and thinking about. And so anyway, they go to this lady by the name of Rahab. Now, some try to point out, well, in the Hebrew, the word harlot can also be translated innkeeper. And that is true. However, in the New Testament, she's also called a harlot. And it's the word harlot. It can't be anything but a harlot. So um, with the New Testament commentary, she was a prostitute. Uh, no excuses. She was a, uh, a sinner, sinful woman. And there they went to stay. Again, they didn't have hotels and motels like we do today. So she, they were able to spend uh, time there, lodged there. They're trapped inside the city. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Been keeping an eye on this, and sure enough, they came in. They're, they're doing reconnaissance. Uh, checking things out, trying to find the weak spots, trying to find out the best place to attack. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, and for they have come to search out all the country. In the culture of this time, when somebody came into your house, you had to be willing to lay your life down to protect them. And so it would be a very shameful thing Uh, against their culture if you forced somebody, a a guest, out of your house. Even the king would have looked bad. And so he's saying you need to voluntarily let go of your covering of protection and and kick them out of the house and let us have them. And um, this is where the story begins to, to get interesting. The woman took the two men and hid them. And she said... Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So she had more than one job. She was... uh, she was in the flax business as well as the prostitute business. And uh, there she was, um, she hid them. Now, people point out going, wow, she lied here. And uh, in a minute, the Lord's going to bless her for, for lying. What, how, do you, how do you reconcile that? Well, first of all, let's remember she's a prostitute. So lying, what's the big deal? You know, um, she's a sinner. Um, she's, she's dealing with things as she knows how to deal with things. However, we do know when two absolutes collide that you have to choose the greater good. We see this earlier in Exodus where Pharaoh, the king, gave the midwives a command. If the Hebrew baby was born and it was a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. They were trying to hurt, minimize the Hebrew population. But uh, the midwives have no intentions of doing that. And when the Pharaoh said, hey, why are these babies being born, these boys? Why didn't you kill them like I told you? They lied to Pharaoh. They said, you know, these Hebrew women are so strong. The time we get there to deliver the baby, the baby's already delivered, and we didn't have a chance to kill him. They lied. And it said God blessed them with houses. So <clears throat> remember that story of Corey Timboom where they were hiding Jews. And if 
the Nazis came and knocked at the door and said, are you hiding Jews? Her older sister believed, no matter what, I can't lie. I just have to tell him, yes, we're hiding Jews. Where are they? Upstairs. Let me show you. She couldn't lie. And so Corey said, you can't ever answer the door. (laughs) I have no problem lying to the Nazis to protect their life. So you have two absolutes. One is we're to submit to authorities. We're to submit to governing authorities. That's a rule. God tells us that we need to submit. There's an absolute. But here's another absolute. We're to protect those who are, in this case, going to be murdered for simply being Jews. And so you have two absolutes collide. Which one do you choose? You choose the greater good to save a life. So I'm going to not submit to the government because I disagree with the government. I think what they're doing is unjust. And therefore, I'm going to choose the greater good and preserve a life, save these Jews from the Holocaust. And in this case here, it was very similar. On one hand, she had been loyal to her country, um, submitting to the king. On the other hand, she, as we're going to discover, knew that it was, it was, it was irrelevant to be loyal to her country because her country was getting ready to disappear. It was irrelevant to be submitted to her king because her king wasn't going to be a king in a few days. And so she, she knew that these were God's people and to protect God's people were more important than being uh, loyal to her country. So she was willing to be treasonous in order to protect what she believed to be God's will. And so we go on here in verse 7 to see that the men pursued them by the road of Jordan to the fords. As soon as those pursued them had gone out, they shut the, the gate. So they were out chasing these guys down. They're hidden upstairs. The gate's shut. And as uh, far as they know, they, they, got, they escaped out of the city walls before the gates were shut. But now in verse 8, before they laid down... They're getting ready to snooze off upstairs, uh, covered under the flak. She came up to them on the roof. And she said to the men, number one, notice what she said. I know that the, notice here, the capital L-O-R-D, the sacred name of the Lord that only the Jews knew, but yet she knew it. I know that Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, we sometimes transliterate it, was given, has given you the land. So this word I know probably would infer that she had a trust, a faith in God. I, I believe, I trust, I, I know that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've given you this land, that this is yours. And number two we see, The terror of you has fallen on us, not just on her, but upon all the people of Jericho and the people of the land of Canaan. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. So this is a, a definite thing. God's put his terror upon you. Remember back in Exodus, this was one of the promises of God. That I am one of the blessings of the Lord is that the terror... The fear of God would be upon all of your enemies. And I'm just going to do that in advance. And in verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you, 
when you came out of Egypt. Now, guys, this was 40 years earlier, which gives us a real insight. Because remember the 12 spies came over and they checked out the land and they were right here 40 years earlier. And what did they do when they returned? Those spies, the 10 of the 12, they had the fear of the enemy in their hearts. But not Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua said, they're our bread and butter. Let's go eat them. Giants, doesn't matter. Nobody's too big for God. Fortified cities, nothing for God. Let's just, let's go right now. Let's not even wait another day. They, had, they were full of faith. But had they talked to the giants, <clears throat> had they inquired what was going on, they would have understood that 40 years earlier, their hearts, these giants, their hearts were fainted within them. They're walking by these giants going, oh, how can we conquer this giant? But hey, Mr. Giant, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm in fear right now. Do you hear the Red Sea dried up over there and the children of Israel are on their way here? And they, they had no idea that in the spiritual realm, 40 years earlier, the people already had the dread of God, the fear of God upon them. Man, it's why we got to be so careful not to look on the outward man, huh? But to see things in the spiritual realm. And so even 40 years earlier, it was a fact. And now, year after year after year after year, the dread, the fear of God was upon them. And so here she's like for 40 years and, you know, Probably, and maybe she's over 40 years old herself, or maybe, you know, she's 25 and she's grown up being told the stories about the children of Israel and God's with them and he dried up the the, the land and he delivered them from Egypt with all these signs. Maybe as a young girl, she's been told these stories by her family about this group of Hebrews, these people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And either way, she says, it's, it's a fact. It's front page in the newspaper every day. The, the reality that we are going to be conquered by you. And then on top of that, more recent events in the last few years. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And in verse 11, as soon as we heard these things, notice... Our hearts melted. Neither did they remain any more courage in anyone because of you. Absolutely zero courage. Their hearts were completely melted. All the strength had left them. The fear of God was upon them. For the Lord, again, capital L-O-R-D, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, your God. Notice what she says here. He is God. What do we discover here with Rahab? She truly is a believer. I know that the Lord, he says back in verse 9, I know, I trust, I believe that the Lord has given you the land. And now she says, I know that your God, he is God. And notice how she describes him. He's the God of the heaven above and all the earth beneath. And let me tell you something. This was not the case 
and pagan religions. They did not believe in a God of the heavens and the earth. They had gods of the sea. They had gods of the wind. They had gods of the rocks. They had gods of the mountains, gods of the valleys. They, they, they had numerous gods, and all their gods had limitations. And, and for her to say, I believe in one God over all things, that was a unique God. That was a unique belief system that we find only amongst the Hebrews. I believe in a God who's the God of all things. And in verse 12, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness, Not notice here, to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that I have and deliver our lives from death. Notice here, it's not just her salvation, but the salvation of her family. I love that there in Acts where the Philippian jailer, remember Paul and Barnabas began to worship the Lord and praise him and the, and the prison doors began to shake and open up and when the Philippian jailer realized that the prisoners could escape, he started to kill himself and, and Paul said, do yourself no harm, but to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household shall be saved. And here we see the same kind of mentality that her faith would bring salvation not just to her, but her whole household. I don't know about you, but heaven won't be heaven unless all my family's there. And I I really want every one of my families as distant as possible to know the Lord. And, And don't get discouraged about your family. It seems to be a a promise of God that there's a a power in your pleas to God for the salvation of your family. And so we see Rahab pleading, not just for her own salvation, but pleading, if you would, to God of the salvation of her whole family. What a beautiful thing. And I I I think it touches deeply the heart of God as well. And in verse 14, so the men answered her, our lives for your lives. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be, notice their faith, when, not if, the Lord has given us the land that we shall deal kindly and truly with you. So these men of faith, I I, I just, I love this. They're like, absolutely. Yes, you know, you're the kind of people that, that belong in the household of God. Now, notice here they didn't say, well, you're a prostitute. You know, if you're a, something other than that, maybe. You know, as we, we go through the scriptures, we discover that, that God is in the business seeking and saving that which is what? Lost. He's seeking for sinners. We think of the the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. We think of the woman at the well who had been married five times before and the man she was living with wasn't her husband. I I love the fact that heaven is not going to be filled with a bunch of self-righteous prudes. It's going to be filled with a bunch of sinners that were saved by grace and are just thankful. Thankful for a God that loves the scum of this earth. (laughs) That he loves the prostitutes. That he loves the sinners. 
And that that is who he seeks to save. And, and, and I love, I just love this fact that if you would, and they're conquering the land, their first evangelism experience <laughs> was a prostitute and the prostitute's family. I, I just love it. It's such a, it's such a fitting picture of the salvation that God's bringing to the land. Not just delivering the land from these idolatrous, wicked people that God says he's vomiting them out because of their, you know, putting their babies in the fire and all the other despicable ways they were worshiping their pagan gods. But on top of that, we see, and we're going to see others that come to believe in the God of Israel and are able to remain in the land in, in, a, in a good way. You know, we, we think of uh, Rahab here. And we say, wow, here's this prostitute. She comes into Israel, and, and, and that's it. That's the end of the story. We never hear about Rahab again. That, I mean, that, it's very possible, isn't it? But actually, as we go into the New Testament, as we continue on in the Scriptures, Rahab became a very integral part of the story, not only of the children of Israel, but of Jesus. Did you know in Matthew chapter 1, when it gives the lineage of Christ, we come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, and it says, Salmon begot Boaz by who? Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by who? Ruth, we're going to find out she's a Moabitess. And then Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot who? David the king. Look at that. David, great-grandma, well, his grandma was Ruth, a Moabitess, a condemned race. And his great-grandma, if that's not bad enough, was a prostitute from Jericho. And of course... This is the lineage not only of King David, but it's the lineage of Jesus. The Savior of the world, his lineage was full of sinners, according to the flesh. Another interesting thing is we come to Hebrews 11. You know, Hebrews 11 is the, is the hall of faith. <clears throat> and it's, it's amazing, you know, the powerhouses of the Old Testament are in there. But yet... It's interesting that Isaiah and Jeremiah is not in there. Daniel is not mentioned in there. Elijah or Elisha is not mentioned in there. But yet Rahab makes the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11 verse 31, by faith the harlot (laughs) Rahab, and that can't be translated any other way, did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. By faith. She had a faith in God that not only saved her, but her whole household. That's not the end of the story. We come to James. And I want to look at a large passage here. You might want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. I will put it up on the screen, but it's a large passage. You might want to have that in your Bible, ready to look at it. In James chapter 2. Starting in verse 14. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith 
but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even demons believe that, and they tremble. But you do not, but you do, do you, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now notice his two examples here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works together with his uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works or by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says and Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Verse 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Look at the second example. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without the works is dead also. And so whether you're the number one believer, the father of our faith, the Jew of all Jews, the Hebrew of all Hebrews, Abraham, or whether you're a prostitute, a woman from a condemned race. Either way, wherever you're at, on whatever end of the pole, faith has action with it. And a faith that's simply a a trophy piece to put on your bookshelf is not faith. True faith has works with it. It has action with it. Now, we saw, God saw, Abraham believed God in Genesis fifteen six, and God said, I account that to you as righteousness. But yet, we didn't see Abraham's faith until we get to Genesis 22, where God says, take Isaac, your son, and sacrifice him. And it tells us in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that God had said, through Isaac your descendants shall be. So he knew that even if he killed Isaac, that God was going to raise him from the dead because he was not yet married and didn't have kids. So what did Abraham have faith in? The resurrection power of God. And so he was beginning to kill his son Isaac, knowing that God would raise him from the dead. If you look in Genesis 22... Abraham said, me and the lad shall return. Even though he knew he was going to sacrifice him, he knew that he wasn't going to come off that mountain as a corpse. He knew he was going to come off the mountain as a living son. He had total faith that God would do what God said he was going to do. With Rahab, we see the same thing. You look back up there in in James 2. It says, you say you believe in God. Well, the demons believe and they tremble. Now, it's interesting because Rahab tells us about the faith of the other people. 
She says, you know, we all know that the Lord is with you. Everybody knows, that's a fact, that God's giving you this land. When we heard you guys cross through the Red Sea, our hearts melted within us. We lost all hope. When we heard what happened to the recent battles there and on the other side of the Jordan, we, we knew that's, there's no hope for us. All courage left us. Now, if you look at this, there are three steps to what we call believing faith. In church history, it's called fiducia. The first step in saving faith is called fidus historia, a historical faith. And that's where you simply believe the facts. Is there a God? Yes, I believe there's a God. Well, do demons believe there's a God? They used to live with him in heaven. <laughs> they used to serve him. I mean, that's not a stretch. There's not an angel. There's not a fallen angel. There's not a demon. That's an atheist. They all believe in God. But does that mean they're saved? No. Just like these guys believe, I, we know who the Lord is. We know who the Yahweh is. He is your God and your God is God. We, we all know that. But yet did they all believe and all have saving faith? Were all from Jericho experiencing the salvation Rahab did? No. The second step is what's called a census. It's the, the senses. There's an emotional stirring. And here in James it says the demons believe there's a God and they tremble. They, they have an emotional reaction to God. We see that through the Gospels, don't we? When somebody's presented before Jesus who is demon-possessed, the demons would cry out. We know that you're Lord. We know that you're the Son of God. We know that you've come and you're going to put all things right. And, <clears throat> and Jesus often had to shut them up because they were giving information before the Lord wanted the information out. And they often would, would say, we know that you're going to eventually condemn us, but before you do... <laughs> Throw us into the pigs. Or whatever it was. They, they, they trembled at the name of Jesus. They, they, they had an emotional reaction. They know he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They would even say, you are the Lord. You are the son of God. The demons would even have an emotional reaction. They couldn't help themselves but speaking emotionally the truth of God. So if somebody says, I believe in Jesus as God, that's a historical fact. Does that mean they're saved? No. But you don't understand. Every time I hear amazing grace, even if it's by Willie Nelson, I weep. I just love the grace of God and I just cry. It reminds me of my grandma's funeral and I just, I'm just so touched by the name of Jesus. I'm so touched by the song Amazing Grace and I got a big, giant, 25-pound Bible right in the middle of my living room. Well, does that mean you're saved? No. When does fiducia happen? Fidus Historia, Ascensus, and fiducia. True saving faith. Well, let me ask you something. Do the demons believe Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do they tremble at his name? Yes. But let me ask you this. Are they submitted to his will? Do the demons say, Jesus, I just want to do your will today. 
Or do they say, I know your will, and I'm going to fight you on it. You see, that's what the people of Jericho did. They had the first two steps of saving faith. We know that your Lord is God. We know that he's given you the land. We know what's happened on the other side of Jordan is going to happen here, and he's giving you this land. All our hearts have melted. All courage has left. We know it's a fact. But yet, unlike Rahab, they were going to fight him on it. Rahab says, I submit to it. This is the will of God, and I am going to betray my own people. I'm going to betray my own king. I'm going to betray my own nation because this is the will of God, and I want to be a part of the will of God. And that is when true saving faith comes. And let me tell you something. When you submit to the will of God, there is action. There is works. It's not a matter of just a belief system in your mind or in your heart. You find yourself acting in the will of God. And so if somebody is not acting, working out, living out the will of God, true saving faith has not happened. How does that look? Well, for Abraham, that looked like offering your son as a sacrifice. How did that look? Rahab, it looked as betraying her people. How does that look in your life? I had a friend who got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, and everything he had in his house was beer. He actually had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of very um, rare beer things. But his house, I mean, his mirrors were beer, his glasses were beer, his coffee table was beer. Everything was beer. His God was beer. And when he came home from the Billy Graham crusade, nobody said anything to him about his beer. He didn't even know Christians. He, got, he was a total non-Christian, got saved, came home, ended up having to find a church. He, 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 he. But that next day, nobody told him anything. He went and took tens of thousands of dollars, probably over $100,000 worth of stuff, he said, and he just trashed it in the dumpster. Just threw it all away. Just, just destroyed it. Nobody told him that. He, he just knew that this was an idolatrous thing. And that's what the faith, the works produced in his life. Faith produced those kind of works in his life. A hatred for his past life. A hatred for the, the God of alcohol. And he really did turn to the Lord. And so we, we see here with Rahab that she didn't just have Phytus Astoria. She didn't just have a census. She had true saving faith, which caused her to hide the spies. And uh, she became not only a woman of faith, but a great woman of faith. Not only a woman of faith, but the great-grandmother of King David. More written about David than any other man in the Bible outside of Jesus. And not only was she the great-grandmother of King David, but she was a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-whatever-grandmother of Jesus Christ, according to the flesh. What a tremendous testimony that our God is the God of sinners. And in verse 15, Then she let down a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. After you may go your way. So she knows 
the system of how they would deal with this. And we discover in the ruins of Jericho, there was actually two walls, um, two outer walls. And uh, her particular place was on the outer, outer wall. And she was able to get them out um, and tell them to hide out. And in verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. This blood red cord. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers and all your father's household in your home. And so this would be the sign, this blood red cord. And of course, uh, in the imagery, you know, it's though your sins be as scarlet, it says in Isaiah, yet I'll make them white as snow. And so the red represented sin that was dyed, that could a permanent sin. But of course, the red also could represent the blood of Christ, the covering. Remember, they put the blood on the outer post there in Egypt of their house. And when the angel of death came, everybody who had blood on the post was spared. Everybody who didn't, their firstborn died. And so sort of in the same way here, if you're not covered in the blood, (laughs) if the blood is not clearly evident, you will die. But yet if this bright red, double-dyed, scarlet rope is is visible and all of your family are behind that blood red rope in that in that room where that red rope is coming from i can't guarantee salvation but in verse 19 so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless and whoever is with you uh, in the house his blood shall be on your head if a hand is laid on him And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. It's a done deal. For indeed all the inhabitants of the countries are faint-hearted because of us. As we're going to discover as we go on and get into chapter 5 that you know, Joshua is feeling like I need to be a reasonable commander here. I need to be thinking militarily. I need to do a reconnaissance mission. I need to be thinking about how I'm going to create my plan of attack. And of course, as we get to chapter five, the Lord's going to appear to him as a soldier and, uh, and tell him, you know what? I don't need your reconnaissance. I don't need your plan of attack. I just need you to obey me. And so Joshua here, I think, is feeling uh, like I need to be reasonable. And I think that's always that way. I think we always need to do due diligence, our part. But so often, you know what? It's, it's really not about us coming up with a plan. It's really about us waiting on the Lord, listening to his plan, and then acting on that plan that the Lord has. 
And here they come back. Really, the only real information they have is they're all scared. <laughs> you know, they're all scared to death. They all know better than we know that the victory is ours. We went over there thinking, man, it's going to hope it's going to be close. You know, they've got a walled cities and, you know, this is going to be a pretty tough thing to conquer this land. And they came back going, nope. They, they have greater faith in our victory than we have in our victory. And that's really where we come back to, to, to the fact that, that they know better than we know that God has done this. It's a done deal. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight. And, and Lord, we thank you that you are the God of sinners and that you are seeking to save that which is lost, including us. We thank you, Lord, for this story of Rahab. We thank you, Lord, that, hmm, what a testimony it is, that you came and identified yourself with sinners, that you came to seek out (laughs) this woman at the well, if you would, this woman caught in the act of adultery, that even though she was a prostitute, she believed that the God of Israel would save her, that even though she was a people of a condemned race that she could be saved by a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would not condemn her. What tremendous faith we see. What tremendous faith it encourages our heart. And Lord, if there's any here tonight who realize they don't have fiducia, true saving faith, Lord, we thank you for the historical facts about you. We thank you that our hearts are stirred. We don't want it any other way. But Lord, we know that true faith produces action. Action in every area. In the word, in prayer, in serving, in giving, in sacrificing, in seeking you in prayer, seeking you in worship, seeking you in the word. Lord, as we now just sort of meditate on these things and worship you, just, Lord, please speak to our hearts here tonight as we wait upon you and If you haven't had a chance to take of communion tonight as we worship here for a few minutes, this is a chance just for you to commune with the Lord, to let God's Spirit speak to you, to take of communion if you'd like, and just let the Lord, let this word now just go in deep and, uh, and cause our hearts to be ready to respond when we leave here tonight, that we're filled up with the Spirit, strengthened in the Spirit, ready to respond in obedience and in faith and in holiness and in power as we go through this week. In the name of Jesus.